0: Our first speaker tonight is the Director of Research at 80,000 Hours. It's an organisation which seeks to guide people into high-impact careers. He's worked as a research economist at various Australian government agencies. Before he moved to the UK to work as a research director at the Centre for Effective Altruism and then the executive director at the Centre for Effective Altruism. He was a founding board member of Animal Charity Evaluators and a member of the World Economics Forum's Global Shapers community. In 2015, the Australian National University named him their Young Alumnus of the Year. Please welcome Rob Woodland. It's great to see so many people out here on a Friday night who are just desperate to learn more about global priorities research, the thing that I do for a living. Um, we have some really fantastic speakers coming up later, especially Peter Singer, uh, who I'm sure many of you are really keen to hear from. Um, and actually my, my first introduction to all of this kind of research, this, uh, like the question of how you can do the most good, uh, was reading Peter Singer's writings on an ethical life when I was, uh, 13, found it in the high school library. And, uh, this has put me on like a 16 year journey so far, trying to figure out how I can do the most good and how people can do the most good in general. Uh, So it's really great to be up here speaking with him. I guess I kind of made it now. (laughs) So So when I googled how to give a speech, it said you should start with a story. So I'm going to do exactly that. In 2006, a bunch of nuclear power stations in the UK were closing down. And people were worried about climate change over there, of course. And so the BBC ran a campaign uh, to explained to British people how they could help to reduce their electricity usage. And they had a whole lot of things to say about this, but one of them was, you know, the nuclear power stations will will be switched off in a few years. How can we keep Britain's lights on? They had a suggestion. Unplug your mobile phone charger when it's not in use. They railed on about this. They had more articles. They concerned Britain tops Energy Waste League. 65% of UK consumers leave their mobile phone chargers plugged in. Now, uh, Professor David Mackay, a Cambridge physicist, who sadly passed away earlier this year, he was a really great guy. He wanted to know uh, how much impact would it have if people took this advice from the BBC and they didn't keep their charges plugged in all the time. So he set about finding out through a bit of his own research. He got one of his phone charges and he plugged it into this electricity meter. And uh, he got the reading of 0.0 watts. That's uh, how much electricity the uh, mobile phone charger was using when it wasn't in use. So nothing. Um, But he didn't stop there. He plugged in two chargers. Still nothing. (laughs) What about four? It's like, you know, looking through the drawers for chargers now. So four chargers, still nothing, 0.0 watts. So he threw everything he had in the house, all the the chargers that he wasn't using. He found six mobile phone chargers, a battery charger, and a laptop charger. And he was able to get it up to a reading of 0.1 watts. All right, okay, well, he's, you know, he's a pretty savvy, mathy kind of guy, a professor of physics, so that's to do the, do the math. What, ha- what would happen if the BBC's campaign were 100% successful and no phone charges were ever left in when not in use ever again? They would have saved 0.01% of all of Britain's energy usage. And he compared this to some other things that people could have done like add cavity insulation to, to their homes to stop you know hot and cold air getting out. This would have saved 300 times as much energy. And it would only require you to do one thing every 25 years, just install the insulation. And it would save you a whole lot of money because it's actually reducing your energy usage, unlike unplugging your mobile phone charger. Now I want to argue in this talk that a lot of do-goodery looks kind of like this. When we fail to quantify the scale of different problems, we often end up working on something Comparatively unimportant, and that's a real problem. But one story isn't enough. I'm going to have a second one. So everyone stand up. We're going to play a bit of a game. Yeah, yeah. Why not? Why not? You guys are maybe at an unfair advantage, but all right. So I'm going to describe three social programs that are operated at a pretty large scale in the United States by you know, various state, local, federal governments over there, and you have to guess whether they help people, hurt them, or do nothing. And the first intervention is preventative home visits. So with preventative home visits, a health professional visits adults over 65 living alone, assists them with medical and social problems, does health checkups, trains them in how to avoid falls, and recommends further services to them. So this has been tested by randomized controlled trials. They give it to some people, they don't give it to others. And you have to guess, what effect do you think this had on how long people lived? If you think it extended their life expectancy, put your arms up. If you think it shortened their life expectancy, put your hands down. And if you think it had no effect, cross your arms. Interesting. Okay. It's quite a quite a wide range of views here. So everyone done? You got three seconds? Make a make a make a call. All right, this one had no effect. Alright, if you got that wrong, sit down. Yeah. Wow. All right, yeah. When that was tested, had no effect on people's life expectancy, as far as anyone could tell. But was tested on quite a lot of people. Oh, you could you could check that out at that that address if you like. Um, Second one, drug courts. So in this program, after being arrested, offenders can get a reduced sentence in exchange for joining a drug court program which involves frequent urine testing, court attendance, tokens of achievement if they avoid drugs, sounds good, and short stays in jail if they don't. And it's been rolled out to 2,400 locations in the US. So, did this decrease the chance of people re-offending? If you think it did, put your hands up. If you think they offended more, put your hands down. And if it made no difference, cross your arms. Give you a second. Okay. Okay. Hands down. Positive effect. This one helps. <laughs> wow. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> All right. Last one. Last one. Scared straight. <laughs> so. Scared straight. So in this program, kids who are kind of going off the rails, you know, juvenile delinquents, you know, they've maybe committed a petty robbery, those kids are taken to jail. They're you know, shouted at by people who are, who are in jail. They're told how horrible it is to be in jail. Um, you know, they're, they're told like, if, they, if they don't return to the straight and narrow, this is where they're going to end up forever and it's going to be horrible. So the question is, did this reduce the rate of future criminal behavior among these, among these teenagers? If you think it did, put your hands up. If you think it caused them to offend more, put your hands down. And if it had no effect, cross your arms. All right, made a decision. Negative effect. In fact, it's one of the worst programs ever devised in the history of humankind. (laughs) This program is so bad (laughs) that one think tank estimated that for every $1 spent on the Scared Straight program, it causes $200 of social damage (laughs) through the extra (laughs) crime that it prompts young people to commit. And we're not sure exactly why that is, but they're making criminal connections. A lot of these are pretty rebellious kids. Maybe they're, they're being berated. They just want to commit more crimes. Anyway, there's so not many of you left standing. So, what can we learn from this? <laughs> Basically, uh, we've got an app with like 10 of these, um, 10 of these uh, things that we chose. We, we didn't choose these to be counterintuitive. These are just like studies that have been conducted on a lot of people. So, there's, a, there's no trick here. Um, if you, if you, if you like, do this experiment, we've got these you know, randomized controlled trial results, and you get people to try to guess um, whether, a, you know, whether a program works or doesn't. Basically, they can't do better than chance. And that's true even of subject matter experts. Like An expert in criminal justice isn't in that much better of a position to guess whether scared straight is going to help or hurt than you or I are. So this is pretty demoralizing. But it doesn't stop there. Because when you test social programs like this, you find that about 75% of social programs run by governments and charities have about no effect or very small effects. That's uh, from David... It's from David Anderson, the Director of Evidence-Based Policy at the Laura and John Arnold Foundation. And he wrote that in 2008, and I emailed him recently to ask whether he would stand by that claim today because uh, he's been doing further research, and he said it's actually probably worse than that. Um, since then, I found like even, even fewer things among the studies that have come out since then are actually succeeding at helping people. So what can we do? Um, what's the alternative to working on unimportant problems uh, that we are not actually solving? I think it's to do global priorities research, among other things, and that's uh, what I'm going to be talking about in the rest of the talk. So Basically, the story is we have limited resources, each of us, maybe 80,000 hours in your career, which is where the name of the organization that I work for comes from. Uh, Maybe if you're uh, very generous, you could give hundreds of thousands of dollars, maybe millions of dollars if you're kind of wealthy, but in the scale of all of the problems in the world, that's not a whole lot. You're going to have to, set, you're going to, have to like limit yourself to solving a relatively small fraction of all of the problems in the world. So we want to work on the most pressing problem that we can actually solve. We want to go out and do research to find the place where our effort can have the biggest, to make can make the biggest possible difference. And this kind of work can be done at multiple different levels of analysis. In our work, we kind of we go up to the highest level, down to the lowest level, a bit like you know unpulling un- Russian dolls and then putting them back together again. So at the narrowest level, you can compare the effectiveness of two different organizations that are working on a pretty similar thing. For example, you could compare the Schistosomiasis Schistosomiasis Control Initiative against Deworm the World, two charities that are working on getting rid of intestinal parasites from poor children in India and Africa. You can go up a level and compare two different interventions that solve the same broad problem. So you could compare the effectiveness of curing these intestinal parasites against working on HIV-AIDS, tuberculosis... Malaria, you know, all, um, all interventions that are designed to focus on preventable disease in the developing world. Or you can go up a level, again, and compare completely different problem areas that affect the world in very different ways. And here's some popular problem areas are global health and easily preventable diseases, a common one, climate change, factory farming and the treatment of animals, and the risk of nuclear war, you know, really quite radically different ways of going about improving the world. And the question that you know, we have to grapple with at 80,000 hours when we're advising people on how they can do the most good through their career is, you know, what is it best for these people who we're coaching to work on? It's not, not, not simple, but I think it is possible in principle to do this. So can, you know, when I talk about comparing global poverty against climate change, some people say, this is, this is just too different. We can't compare different kinds of problems that affect different people in such different ways at different points in time they're tempted to throw out their hands and say, these things are just in- in- incomparable. But I think that this is a mistake. And I think our common sense intuition can actually be an extremely useful guide here. We've, humans have evolved like very st- good ability to want- understand one another, at least some of us, have uh, empathy for other people. Um, and we're actually pretty good at estimating the effect of you know, different problems on people's welfare. For example, imagine that I stub my toe on a door. Um, I've done that, and it's surprisingly painful. But is that better or worse than someone else getting into a serious car crash? Which of these two things is more important to uh, to prevent? I think unless you're being really obtusely philosophical, it's pretty clear that being in a major car crash, or one person being in a major car crash, is worse than another person stubbing their toe, in almost every case. That's because it does more, like being in a car crash does more to lower someone's welfare. And you can just ask yourself, which of these two things would I prefer to happen to me? And the same basically applies if the things happen to two different people in most cases. Now, if that's right, then we can, in principle, compare the value on, of working on different problems if we have enough information. And, and if we're going to compare things that affect different people, I, we need to quantify the benefits and harms involved. And if they affect two different people, we should act as though we don't know which one of them we would be or which one is going to be affected by what. We should aspire to be impartial between them, which is to say say that we should treat each person as equally morally important. Now, the ultimate goal of all of this global priorities research that people are working on, the holy grail, if you will, would be to know for every action how much good would it accomplish, which is to say how much good would you do per dollar that you gave to different organizations or per hour that you spent on a different project. But you won't be shocked to find out that that is not, not super easy. While this all makes sense in theory, in practice it's often really hard to figure out uh, what the best thing to do is. And this is especially true when people are thinking about working on something innovative rather than just scaling up something that's already been done and that we've tested really well. So it's hard to figure out like, how bad problems are. Sometimes it's hard to know how much harm they're causing. If you work if you focus on solving a problem, like how much of it you're gonna solve or your likelihood of succeeding, how much time and money it's gonna cost is can be hard to estimate, or the long-run effect of having success. And a lot of people they like look at all this these empir- difficult empirical questions and they just again feel like throwing up their hands. But I don't think that that's the right response. Uh we can simplify this problem and make it manageable in most cases by breaking it down. And that's uh we've been working on this uh on this framework at the Center for Effective Altruism, and this is also used by GiveWell and the Open Philanthropy Project, uh, organizations that some of you guys might know. But we break down uh, this question of how like, how much good you do per dollar into three different pieces, which are a bit easier to tackle. And the first one is the importance of dealing with a problem. So here you want to know, like if you're thinking about importance or scale, you want to know how many people are affected by a problem and how bad it is for each person who's being affected by it, or how good it would be if you had some positive thing. So you can imagine if we were considering researching a cure for depression, we'd want to know how many people in the world had depression, how long they had it for, and how bad it was for each person um, on average. The second criteria is solvability. So if we double the resources focused on a problem, what fraction of the problem would we expect to solve is our measure of solvability, of how easy it is to make progress on the problem. So sticking with the depression research example, uh, would want to ask if we, yeah, if we double the resources that went into uh, working on depression how what what fraction of depression would we, we be able to solve like what would be our chances of coming up with a complete cure or what fraction of people would we we'd be able to completely treat and the last criteria is neglectedness, and this is important because whenever people are tackling a problem in their lives, they tend to do the most valuable things first they uh, yeah when you 're trying to cure depression, you first attempt the most promising uh, re- Paths in the in the research, and then the more effort you put in, the harder it is to make further progress. This is called declining marginal returns, and it's something that you notice almost everywhere. So, uh, we measured neglectedness, like how many, how much low hanging fruit there's likely to be in an area, by asking for each dollar that you added, what percentage increase in the total effort on that problem would that represent. So, given these like three ways of describing these different criteria, if you multiply them together. Four of the six parts cancel out, and then you get good done per dollar. Uh, so this is a way of like breaking down the problem, and then you just put it back together again. Now another problem: there's a lot of problems in the world. Uh, we can't go about checking every single thing that we could work on, <laughs> um, and there's a lot of different ways of cutting them up. So you could think about global health as a whole, or you could think about every every disease. Like as I was saying, it's like you know, it's like a fractal um everything you know you can become more detailed or go go higher level so we can't research everything so we need a way of coming up with a short list of things that are particularly promising so that we can actually make some progress on this whole research question within our lifetimes and there's a whole lot of heuristics that you can use which i think are actually pretty pretty good guide so one would be to think about who is poorest or saddest in the world thinking that as they're the worst off there's the most potential to improve their well-being And this kind of criteria gets people to look at extreme poverty, global health to some extent, Uh, also like people who have serious mental health problems, often like extremely badly off, or animals in factory farms that suffer really horrible abuse and have very unpleasant lives. The next criteria would be uh, what effects last the longest? So is there anything that we can do to improve the world that won't just improve it today or in a year's time, but will leave a lasting impact 10, 100, 1,000 years from now? And that tends to get people to look at preventing wars or really big catastrophes that would leave scars on humanity that would last potentially forever. The third criteria is looking at what problems affect billions of people that we can fix. So uh, in the 19th century, uh, smallpox was this extremely common disease that was very unpleasant and killed a large fraction of everyone who was born. But we managed to get rid of it completely using using smallpox vaccination. And if you're going to come up with, you know, uh something new that can fix the problem completely, you want to focus on a problem that affects a lot of people in a big way. So you want to look at, you know, what are the worst diseases in the world? And again, I think on this criteria, say depression or anxiety, uh look look pretty good. Then the last one is what are most people incorrectly ignoring? So there's some problems that seem like they're big, but then there's not many people working on them and other people don't maybe don't feel like they're such a big deal. And if you have some special knowledge or some special insight, maybe you can recognize that something is a real problem that other people just uh, don't understand. And I think a good uh, possible um, thing in this class would be factory farming, that many people don't think animals are so morally important, and so they're willing to you know, ignore the suffering of animals in, in factory farms or perhaps even contribute contribute to it by, by buying animal products, that kind of thing. And of course, at 80,000 Hours, when we're coaching people, we also think, what, are, what is this person, you know, really well placed to solve? What are their specific skills, their specific connections, their specific opportunities? Which is always going to be an individual thing. The last thing. So, what outcome should we be targeting? This, this one's pretty tricky. So, let's say that we did, you know, we had fantastic economists and psychologists and so on, and we found that $100,000 we thought would buy it would save 30 lives in the developing world through basic health treatments, or could raise Kenya's GDP by $20,000 forever through some economic empowerment program. Or it could give us a 1 in 20,000 chance of switching the election from Clinton to Trump. Or Trump to Clinton, depending on the other way around, depending on, you know. So Keep an open mind. Um, (laughs) I don't keep an open mind, but, you know, you can. (laughs) Which which one of these improves the world most in the long term? Uh, This is like, yeah, it's kind of my reaction to that question. (laughs) But I'm going to be speaking about this exact topic for uh, 20 uh, minutes uh, tomorrow morning if you're coming to EAG uh, Global. And it's, while it's not easy, I think we have made major progress on this, on this already by you know, thinking things through uh, pretty carefully. Um, the mission statement of the Center for Effective Altruism, where I work, is to foster projects which use evidence and analysis to help others as much as possible. And effective altruism is really strongly associated with running randomized controlled trials uh, to figure out what works. And that is definitely a good idea. Uh, where it's possible. But because we can't run history again and again uh, and see the distribution of outcomes when we work on different projects, um, just running trials can't really solve all of our problems. For These big picture questions, uh, we need to learn from history and use some raw brain power as well. We need measurements, but I think we also need modeling and theory sometimes to compare the value of different things. Now, why does all of this matter so much? Intuitively, you might think that if you ra- uh, ranked problems on how pressing they were, and then put them all in a graph from most pressing to least pressing, you'd end up with something like this. which pro- Some problems are definitely much more pressing than others, but most of them are pretty good, and there isn't that much of a range. But instead, when we do this kind of analysis, the graph looks more like this. Some problems are far more pressing than others. The most pressing problems that we find look to be 10, 100, or 1,000 times more important to work on, or more cost-effective to work on than others. The range is really enormous. And a typical problem seems much less important than the very best ones. And this is consistent with what we see in specific cases where we can get somewhat stronger evidence. We can look at different medical treatments and how much they improve health for each dollar that's spent on them. And it's really common for some treatments to be 10 or 100 or 1,000 times more cost-effective than others. And this means we can potentially get really big gains by choosing wisely which ones we decide to buy with our limited resources, and choosing only the best ones and not spending money on things that don't work so well. This area of research is pretty new, and it's not widely applied yet, though it looks a bit like cost, uh, you know, cost-benefit analysis. This is the kind of a precursor. But, um, it means that the priorities that are implicitly said in government policy, businesses, nonprofits, um, often seem a bit all over the place when you approach it from the systemic, um, in the systemic way, comparing all kinds of things at the highest level. And this means that there's potentially a lot of low-hanging fruit available by reprioritizing what we work on. And this is true even if we can't measure things perfectly. So, coming up, we've got Kirsten Armstrong, Peter Singer, Eva Vivat. And you can text questions to my phone, and I'll, uh, read them diligently and pass them on. Thanks so much.